1996, the South African football team, nicknamed Bafana Bafana, hosted and won the premier continental football tournament, the Africa Cup of Nations. Their coach, Clive the Dog Barker, relied on a novel melody to get the team to sing. Welcome to The Luke Alfred Show. I have 30 years of experience on the front lines of sports journalism, covering some of the biggest games in cricket, rugby, the FIFA World Cup, and even the Olympic Games. Come and join me as we learn about some of the greatest sports stories you've never heard. I'm Luke Alfred, and welcome to the show. Bafana Bafana coach Clive Barker was sitting in the Ellis Park stands on Rugby World Cup final day in 1995 and his feelings, it is fair to say, were not those of your average Springbok supporter. They were more complicated by half. Barker told me many years later that when Joel Stransky potted that drop goal to give the box a 15-12 extra time win over the All Blacks, he quickly became aware of something lurking beyond the goose flesh of victory. He became aware of an emerging tradition, a tradition of winning. It gave him a flutter of angst. What in those heady days was called the new South Africa was suddenly full of hope and expectation. From this point on, it was impossible for Bafana Bafana to simply be contenders. The box had proverbially raised the bar, although they hadn't, of course, raised the bar to the point where Stransky couldn't sail his dropkick over it with a kind of sweet-struck immaculate magnificence. In an instant, Barker was confronted with something hitherto known only to white ball cricketers, scoreboard pressure. Despite national chest-thumping to the contrary, black South Africans didn't much support rugby. Football was their game. Now that rugby had won the William Webb Ellis Trophy, football fans would demand a slice of the winning pie. The pressure started when it was announced in late 1994 that South Africa, not Kenya, as originally planned, would host the 1996 Africa Cup of Nations. As the tournament grew closer, the hullabaloo over alternative hosts wasn't the only noise in Africa. Nigerian dictator Sonny Abacha was making a fair racket by himself too. He would see to it, he said, that the Super Eagles had their wings clipped. They wouldn't be able to leave Nigeria to defend their title, one when they beat Zambia in the Africa Cup of Nations final of 1994. This, of course, was a butcher's tit-for-tat riposte to Nelson Mandela's suggestion that sanctions should be brought to bear on Nigeria after the Abacha regime hanged nine, quote, environmental activists in November 1995, which included the playwright Ken Sarawiwa. Secure in the knowledge that South Africa would qualify automatically for the Cup of Nations as hosts, Barker couldn't let the noise interfere with his preparation. He chose his side, a nice blend of cooks like Linda Butelezi and chefs like John Shoes Mishweo, hoping against hope that the injured Lucas Gadebe, then of Leeds United, would be able to play in the tournament. If he did, thought Barker, it would surely underline Gedebe's status as one of the best defenders in the world. Barker didn't only have cooks and chefs at his disposal. He had a squad who were an easy blend of innocence and experience, with an average age in their high 20s. The 21-year-old Mark Fish, who was fond of breezy expeditions upfield from defence, rubbing shoulders with a far more stay-at-home talents of Captain Neil Tovey, now 33, as he policed the young men. He also had a decent bench, waiters if you like, 
to the cooks and chefs. Think of Augustine Makalakalani, Roger Dessart, John Moetti, Zayn Musa and Mark Williams. Only some of them would get a game, but they were ready to take off their tracksuit at the first hint of interest from the gaffer. Barker had seen how meticulous Springbok coach Kitch Christie's planning had been before the Bok World Cup victory, so spoke to Christie's manager, Monet Duplessis, wringing details out of him like water from a rag. Quote, make sure you start off on the front foot, Duplessis stressed. Barker even saw to it that Bafana were booked into one of the swankiest hotels in town, the Sunnyside Hotel in Parktown, where the rooms were large, the gardens leafy, and there were pianos in the bars. Bafana would love it. Barker was nicknamed The Dog, but he should have been nicknamed The Banker. As a younger man, he used to moonlight as a taxi driver to supplement his wages, but in the 1970s, he lost his day job and driving taxis wasn't enough to cover the bills. He'd been a decent enough footballer in South Africa in the 1960s to earn a trial at Leicester City. Barker was badly injured on the eve of his departure for the trial, so thought that coaching might be his lifeline, and it was. At one time or another, he coached most of the clubs in the greater Durban metropolitan area, Pinetown Celtic, Juventus Durban, Yellowwood Park, Durban Bushbucks, and Amazulu, who he coached four times in all. He became successful and earned a reputation. It would hold him in good stead when things finally began to change in South Africa at large. Barker's forays into the townships were investment. With prudent investment comes reward. Being awarded the Bafana coaching job in 1994 was Barker's dividend for his apartheid investment when white coaches and managers were scared to venture beyond the suburbs. At the beginning of 1996, with the competition only days away, Barker realised that he better make that investment count. With a butcher true to his word in preventing the Super Eagles from attending the tournament, it was a 15-team competition, with three groups of four and one group of three, the three being Gabon, Zaire and Liberia. Up first for South Africa were Cameroon, with the match being played at the FNB Stadium on the outskirts of Soweto on January 13, 1996. Being hosts brought its advantages, preferential scheduling for one. The Cameroon match was on a Saturday, so attracted 75,000 boisterous shouting fans, while the other two teams in the group, Egypt and Angola, played their opening match before a meagre 6,000 fans on the following Monday. Could it be that Egypt, who the South Africans feared, were intentionally neglected throughout? In 1996, Cameroon were a fading force, no longer quite the team they were in Italia 90, and they were 2-0 down to South Africa by half-time in their opening game. They couldn't score themselves and conceded a third to one of shoes two shoes ten minutes after the break. For Cameroon, there was no way back. And so Barker's men opened with a pride-affirming win, just as the Springboks had when they beat the Wallabies at Newlands six months before. Barker had taken Duplessis' advice. Bafana were up and running, and Barker was running too, jogging down the touchline with his arms stretched out, his approximation of a jet airliner during happy hour. He used to do somersaults, he explained, quote, but that got a little risky as I injured myself and began to get a little older. So I went in for something far more sedate. 
The dog hadn't played Kadebe against Cameroon, but thought it was safe to play him against Angola in Game 2. A mistake. Kadebe had a shocker. He wasn't match fit and struggled, although thanks to a second-half goal by Williams, the hosts snuck through 1-0. With two wins, they were through to the next round, but the performance was iffy. Barker began to get a little concerned. A narrow midweek loss to Egypt further shredded Barker's nerves, and in the gap between the end of the group stage and the beginning of the knockouts, he had a moment of inspiration. He asked his managers, Mike McCarb, Peter Nyama, and Budgie Byrne, to round up the troops. They congregated in a sunny side bar, and Barker told them to order whatever they pleased. He wasn't going to stand in judgment. After a few pots, I remember Barker calling them, Williams wandered over to a nearby piano, asking the pianist to play a few tunes. Barker liked Williams and his fellow wild man, Fish, who invariably cheated at pool and never consulted the information about the opposition pasted up in the walls of the team room. Now he liked Williams even more, because he started to sing. His false teeth seemed to be no impediment at all. Williams was no Frank Sinatra, he was no Dean Martin, he was no Mel Torme, but that was unimportant. What was important now was that the squad followed Williams in his rendition of the Righteous Brothers' Unchained Melody. Barker and his technical staff looked on, wondering what on earth they were doing. Barker noting that Williams had difficulty in holding a note, and that he never went up an octave correctly. But that was to quibble. Here was a team who was suddenly harmonising rather nicely. By this stage, everyone knew who their opponents would be in the quarterfinals. Bafana drew Algeria. The game was played on a Saturday afternoon on the Highfelt in summer, which could only mean one thing. Rain. The press box in those days was figuratively leaky at the best of times. Fans sitting in the stands around the press box wandered in to use the loos at the back. Finding it a good place to hang out with shaded seats and access to an endless supply of cool drinks in the nearby fridge, they often stayed, clogging the aisles while wizened and dunas threatened them good-naturedly with truncheons. That afternoon, as it happened, I was in overspill, and as a young journalist, I was directed down the press box stairs to a dusty blue seat in the stands nearby. In 1996, the FNB Stadium was not the first world structure the World Cup final was played in 14 years later, and it had no grandstand roof. It was really just a gigantic concrete bowl, uneven on the western side where the bowl's tiers extended further into the sky than they did on the stadium's other three sides. No sooner had the game started than the predicted rain arrived in all its customary splendour. Bright umbrellas went up. Today there's more concern for players' safety in high-felt thunder, rain and lightning, but health and safety sensitivity wasn't very well developed back then. The referee from the UAE allowed the game to continue. Here were two well-matched teams. Algeria had only finished second in their group on goal difference to Zambia, and the rain was a great leveller. Perhaps the verb is inaccurate. The rain might have been a great flattener, it certainly flattened me out on the stands with the hoi polloi, folk who would mightily shout, Fish! the moment the long-haired youngster touched the ball. It certainly was pretty wet down there. Puddles became pools. 
the ball stopped and couldn't be persuaded to move. Neither South Africa nor Algeria managed to create a clear chance, and it was scoreless at half-time. The Barker aeroplane remained in its hangar. This was a big game, a quarter-final, so there was much to write about. I was taking notes in a pale blue reporter's notebook taken from office stationery. The more I wrote, the more the words smudged in the rain. So, in effect, the less I wrote. After a while, I put my notebook away in my anorak, reasoning that I would keep it partially dry for that really important burst of note-taking. But what good is an unused notebook? Notebooks are for notes. Notes need to be noted. I hold it out again, but before long, it had turned into a soggy mess of notes. No more note-taking. No notes, for example, on Dr. Kumalo's saved penalty in the first half. Halfway through the second half, and the Algerian defence reacted sloppily to a back pass. Far up the field on one of his forays, none other than Fish pounced on the ball, slipping it past the advancing goalkeeper and two defenders as he stubbed the ball into the net. The aeroplane came out of his hangar. With only six minutes of regulation time left, disaster for the men who'd sung Righteous Brothers tunes around the pub piano. Tarek Lazisi, nicknamed Beresi after the peerless Italian defender Franco Beresi, took advantage of some sloppy Bafana marking to head home from close after an Algerian corner. 1-1. Those fans who'd remained were now thoroughly drenched and cold. Extra time beckoned. They would only get colder. But no, there was a twist left in this quarterfinal yet. A minute after Lazizi's equaliser, Bafana turned Algerian possession over deep in Algeria's half. The ball bobbled its way to Shuz Mashweo in a dangerous position with the goal in his sights. Here time, and note-taking, stood still. The Algerian defenders seemed to be under the impression that Mashweo, on the edge of the box on the Algerian left, was about to cross the ball, so backed away, giving him time to compose himself and pick his spot. This he did, firing a low, accurate shot past Mohamed Haniched's right hand in the Algeria goals. The umbrellas in the stands bobbed in the light. The dog smiled, carefully. Some of us wondered whether to record this all in our notebooks. Bafana were off to the semi-finals. Before the tournament, there were extended negotiations between Barker and Howard Wilkinson, Khadebe's manager at Leeds United. Wilkinson told Barker that he would release Khadebe for the tournament on the condition that the injury-prone Khadebe would be introduced slowly, and that he was. But Barker took a great deal of convincing. In the early minutes of the semi-final against Ghana, 1-0 winners of their quarter-final against 10-man Zaire, Kadebe complacently stroked the ball out of defence straight into the path of his Leeds teammate, Tony Yeboa. Yeboa accepted the present and thundered towards goal, with Kadebe in hot pursuit. Seconds later, to his relief, Kadebe saw Yeboa's left-footed shot go wide. Kadebe's mistake brought him to his senses. He man-marked Yeboa out of the game. One of Yeboa's chief suppliers, Abede Pele, had been injured in the Zaire quarterfinal and Ghana were bereft of ideas. The Khadebe goal in a platter moment was their best chance of the match. Bafana, meanwhile, had ideas to burn. They were on song. 
Mishweo's bicycle kick in the box opened the scoring, and just after half-time, Sean Bartlett used his pace to good effect to outstrip the Ghanaian defence after a long ball to make it two. With it, pandemonium in the stands. And was that activity on the touchline? Was this a dog? sensibly saying no to a somersault and taking to the air while remaining steadfastly rooted to the ground. So inspired had I been in my inability to take a legible note during the downpour against Algeria that I managed to convince my wife, heavily pregnant with our second child at the time, and my parents to attend the semi-final. We potted out to the stadium in my dad's second-hand white Lancia, Lisa and I squeezing into the small back seat. It was a nighttime game and the edge of Soweto was bright with new South African flags. The aroma of frying meat and aromat from a thousand portable barbecues wafted through the soft night air. So noisy was it, though, that none of us actually heard the anthems being sung. At the end, after Bafana's third goal, again to Mashweo, and none of this mattered. Bafana Bafana were through to the final. They were singing in tune. They would play Tunisia, the hosts of the 1994 tournament won by Nigeria, who had beaten Zambia 4-2 in their semi-final. One of the features of Bafana's campaign in 1996 was their aggressive tackling and pressing far into the opposition's half. And their second in the final against Tunisia came this way too. Dr. Kumalo played a slick diagonal ball after one such interception to his left, and Williams, a second-half substitute for Phil Massinga, clipped a left-footed shot into the Algerian goals, his second goal in two minutes, Bafana 2, Tunisia 0. So excited was he to be brought on that Williams forgot his false teeth on the touchline. Quote, We all looked at them as he was running on as if to say, mm, Perhaps he'll need them out there, but I'm not going to be the one to run on with them in the cup final, Barker said to me many years later. The dog's finest day has a sad postscript. In researching this podcast, I phoned him, wanting to say hello and check on a couple of facts. Clive is an old-fashioned kind of guy, so I phoned on the landline, because he has a fairly idiosyncratic relationship with his cell phone, the best of times. His wife answered the phone, telling me that Clive was in bed after returning home from hospital and struggling with a number of things she didn't specify. Out of respect, I chose not to ask about them. She sounded tired and a little stressed and forlorn. I sincerely hope that the dog begins to fly again soon.